heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. This world we live in is in a time of cataclysmic change. Nearly every culture around the world is questioning the basic values that guided it in the past. And we, in America, we sit at the epicenter of this chaos. So where do we go from here? Welcome to this edition of The Voice of a Nation. I'm Alana Friedman, your host. There are a lot of stories to talk about, so let's dig right in. There are new drivers for the changes that are trying to reshape the American dream. Instant communication through handheld devices that can go anywhere and provide information in moments. And these devices have turned thoughtful modernization of old traditions into the radical and wanton destruction of the values that made this country great. We're seeing, in real time, the return of the old socialist warlords who aim to control the population and accumulate the wealth. We are watching the power of huge corporate giants trying to limit our free expression and control our opinions. And they are changing our language, the meaning of our words, so that these same words can be used as weapons in a war against us and against our freedoms. Take, for example, the word cancel. Cancel. That's an example. We use to say, please cancel my appointment, or I want to cancel this check. But today, the word cancel has a whole new meaning. It refers to people. If you cancel a person on social media, you silence his voice. You kick him out of the conversation. And why? Because he dares to express an opinion that is different from the powerful people who control that social media. Or take the word groom. It used to mean combing your hair, shaving, or making your clothes presentable and pressed. Then, a few years ago, a word popped up in England, and the word groomed referred to gangs of Muslim men who were kidnapping young British girls and grooming them to be raped and controlled. Most recently, here in the U.S., the word grooming is now being used to mean the preparing of our own children, as young as five, by their teachers, to accept the belief that they can change their gender and wreck their lives forever, and that it's all right to ask for gender-altering drugs and surgeries. And our children are being told to keep this process a secret from their parents. This is not unlike the grooming that takes place in England, except that here, in a grade school near you, it's our children's minds that are being groomed, 
their young minds are being raped by people whom they are supposed to trust, to believe things that will damage them for life. Once upon a time, only 0.02% of all children had gender identification issues called gender dysphoria. And over 80% of those children were boys. But in the last seven years, since the epidemic of gender dysphoria diagnoses was discovered and captured by woke educators, that number has risen by 5,000%. And today, more than 60% of those new diagnoses are young females, mostly teens and young adults. Social transitioning is the newest educational buzzword. Instead of teaching our children to speak proper English and study the wisdom of great minds in fields like math and science and letters, they are being taught to question their identities. Their parents, from whom they must keep this grooming process a secret, and the truth of their own existence. They are being taught to question all of these and more than that, to reject them. So by changing our language and what it means, they, meaning the liberals who embrace this change in our educational process, are restructuring how we think about everything, including the very essence of who we are and how we raise our children. When such a process is intentionally kept from parents while the basic identity of their children is being intentionally subjected to the arrows of self-doubt and the stress of adult pressure on their identities, this is an attack on the integrity of the American family and the role of the family in teaching life values. You know, I have a relative who, as a child, was a real, what we used to call a real tomboy. She was a girl, but she played baseball with the boys, and she was an avid sports fan. Even today, basketball, soccer, football, and baseball all consume her attention when her favorite teams are on television. If she were growing up today, I would have no doubt that she would be pressed to question her gender. But I recently asked her, if you were ever asked when you were a little girl if you wanted to be a boy instead of a girl, if you were offered the opportunity to change, what would you have answered? Did you ever regret being a girl? She answered without hesitation, absolutely not. Even though I love to play ball with the boys, I enjoyed being a girl, a girl who likes sports. What's wrong with that? And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. And here are another pair of words that have changed behavior in this country dramatically. Back in 2009, when the name Donald Trump first came on the scene as a candidate for president, a new social movement was formed. It began on the college campuses. Trump became the personification of everything that was scary and evil. Liberal black students were traumatized when they saw Trump's campaign signs on the campus and they demanded, demanded what they called safe spaces. 
where they could huddle with like-minded black students and be spared any exposure to a discussion of politics that involved the dreaded Donald Trump. Well, in the process of hiding from reality, instead of becoming involved in the political process in a positive way, they created a new social dynamic, safe spaces that required the separation of liberal black students from their white classmates. In other words, they rebelled against the emancipation from racial segregation that their grandparents had fought so hard against and gave up so much so that they could end that evil practice known as Jim Crow. It took a hundred years after the end of slavery for that to happen in this country. And yet, only 60 years later, their grandchildren were renouncing all of their sacrifice and demanding safe spaces. And this, this was the beginning of new life for groups like Black Lives Matter and Antifa, which led to the destructive and deadly riots in cities across the country in the summer of 2020. American life, my friends, as we have known it, is at a breaking point, and our language has been weaponized so that it is difficult to fight back against the relatively small but very vocal and powerful liberal minority. We only have to look at the latest polls about our president to understand how small this minority is. The most recent Quinnipiac poll, which was released on April 14th, showed that Joe Biden has only a 33% favorability rating. That's the lowest in history. And among Hispanics, who were supposed to be his strongest demographic, he had only 28%. People were asked in this poll, do you approve or disapprove of the way Joe Biden is handling his job as president? 54% disapproved. And in answer to the question, do you approve or disapprove of the way Joe Biden is handling the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, only 39% said they approve and 48% said they disapprove. That's a pretty sad showing for the man who has only been president slightly more than a year. Now that last question brings us to another subject that has been dominating the news, the war in Ukraine. On April 14th, we heard a report that an entire column of Russian armored vehicles was blown up as they were crossing a bridge in Kharkiv. The column of tanks or vehicles was on its way to the city of Izum. The Russians haven't said anything about this, but if it is true, it represents another major hit against Russian forces in Putin's floundering invasion of Ukraine. Remember, this invasion was supposed to take two or three days, and it is now going on week seven or eight. There was also a report that Ukrainian forces had destroyed the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. It was a ship called Moskva, which means Moscow, of course, which is one of Russia's largest ships and the premier battleship in the Black Sea. 
Ukraine said that a Ukrainian-made Neptune anti-ship missile was launched against the Moskva and caused a fire that resulted in the sinking of the ship. Of course, the Russians denied that the ship was destroyed, and they said that it had been damaged but by a fire uh, in their ammunition store. The ship, according to both sides, was evacuated, and according to the Russians, it was being towed back to port. But within 24 hours, the Russians were forced to admit that the ship had actually sunk. They still deny that the ship was damaged by a Ukrainian missile, but I'll go with the Ukrainian story. And whatever the cause, it was a major defeat for Russia and a major victory for Ukraine because the Moskva was one of the largest naval combatants sunk by enemy action since World War II. And its sinking may indicate a weakness in Russia's anti-missile defenses. These kinds of conflicting reports are common in war. But what is interesting is that the Ukrainians are fighting a very strong defense of their country against a much stronger military. And all in all, they are keeping Russia on the defensive. And unlike the Russians, they are reporting the wins and losses accurately. And against all odds, they seem to be winning. It's quite amazing because now that they are winning, the Western allies, so-called, are rushing in to help them with the weapons and ammunitions and planes that Ukraine's President Zelensky has been asking for since the war began seven weeks ago. Still, despite significant Russian losses, the Russians have done enormous damage to Ukraine. Thousands of lives have been lost and whole cities have been reduced to rubble. In Mariupol, for example, the mayor said that more than 10,000 civilians died in the Russian onslaught and that their corpses, quote, carpeted through the streets, unquote. Mariupol sustained so much destruction that Ukraine now says that 90% of the city has been totally destroyed. Would you be surprised to know that Moscow has blamed Ukraine for the civilian deaths? In fact, Russia has denied ever attacking civilians. But there is so much proof that Russia not only targeted civilians, but that they purposely targeted schools and hospitals and museums. And we know that Russia lies constantly and denies everything and blames it all on others. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Much like our own Democrats, who lie about things they don't want to admit, deny what they can't avoid, even though it has been captured on video, and blame everything on Republicans. When we look back at the last year since Joe Biden became president, we are really looking at an echo of one of his predecessors who was just as weak as Biden, but who hid it well. I'm talking, of course, of Barack Obama. When he faced a similar situation, similar to what Biden has been facing in Ukraine, when Russia attacked Ukraine and captured Crimea, Obama acted quickly. But instead of offending Russia by offering weapons to Ukraine, instead of sending ammunition and missiles, Barack Obama 
sent blankets. Gee, thanks, America. Russia read Obama right. Obama spoke big words, but he was weak in foreign affairs. Instead of standing strong for America, Obama apologized for America. He was nothing for Russia to be afraid of. So Crimea was lost, and eventually it was annexed to Russia, and Ukrainians had some blankets. Russia has been biding its time until it could attack again, and it didn't need to wait too long. During Donald Trump's tenure in the White House, Russia held its breath. So for four years, the sleeping Russian bear just waited. But then, the 2019 elections came and went with an explosion of corruption that still hasn't been resolved, and sleepy Joe Biden entered the White House. After just one year of getting ready, Putin was ready to strike at Ukraine again and finish what he started in 2014. The war, which was supposed to only take two or three days, is far from over. The Ukrainians are not only standing strong against a much larger enemy, but they're winning. And we will have to see what happens next. Now, even as we're watching this war in Ukraine, there's a lot more going on in the world, and I'd like to tell you about it, and I will, right after the break. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on the precautions, but deep down you still want to avoid getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray. Made in the USA, Cofix RX reduces viral loads and minimizes the risk of you getting sick. Find a retailer near you or click our banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Along with a healthy immune system, clean air is vital for optimal health. According to the EPA, we spend 90% of our time indoors, where germs are most concentrated. It's essential to clean indoor air. Genesis is the only technology that quickly, safely, and effectively kills pathogens both in the air and on surfaces in seconds, reducing the viral load in any environment. The powerful, well-built Genesis Fogger produces a dry, ultra-fine mist using HOCL, which occurs naturally in our own immune systems. We'll be living with airborne diseases in the future. New viruses and antibiotic-resistant superbugs are no problem for Genesis. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Visit genesisfogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUTLOUD at genesisfogger.com slash outloud. Welcome back to The Voice of a Nation. I'm your host, Ilana Friedman. And here's something that's been bugging me for a long time. Now, I haven't been a fan of the United Nations for many years. They're corrupt, and so far from the democratic model on which they were designed in 1945 that they're barely recognizable. The organization was created with lofty goals to create an environment in which international peace and security could thrive, to develop friendly relations among nations, to bring about international cooperation, 
and be a center for harmonizing the actions of nations. Its organization was based on democratic principles, with every nation getting a single vote in the General Assembly. But here's the problem. Many of the member nations are dictatorships, or worse. Some are among the most corrupt countries in the world. And some, like China and Russia and Iran and others, practice torture and genocide, either at home or in wars with other countries. So how could we ever expect this organization, the United Nations, to behave in ways that are anything but corrupt? The corruption in the United Nations runs the gamut of everything, including threats of radical Islam, North Korea's nuclear blackmail, Iran's pursuit of nuclear bombs, kickbacks, billions of dollars in graft in the oil for food scandal, the rape of minors in the Congo sex scandal, the rampant practice of organ harvesting by China and their genocide of the Uyghurs and the Falun Gong believers, and last but surely not least, a total lack of accountability. As I said, who can blame them when so many of the member nations are themselves corrupt, have no idea what a democratic process really looks like, and have little interest in practicing the values of democracy in this corrupt and unaccountable organization that is supposed to bring peace to the world, but so far in all these years hasn't made much of a dent. So after saying all of that, here is one of the things that really bugs me because it is so obvious and so totally abusive of the power that the member state officials believe they hold. Among the countries that populate the UN Committee on Human Rights are 10 nations that are guilty of repressing human rights activities in their own countries. Now, the committee is tasked to monitor human rights in member countries. So let's look at the newest members to the committee. China, Cuba, Turkey, Nicaragua, Eritrea, Pakistan, Algeria, Bahrain, and Cameroon. Let me just say a few words about two of the newly appointed members and one that is already on the committee. China which is guilty of human rights abuses, including arrest and torture of political dissidents, slavery, forced organ harvesting, rape and torture of prisoners, slavery and genocide, and much more. Cuba, which is guilty of mass detentions and sham trials, unlawful or arbitrary killings, torture, and cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment of political dissidents, by security forces. And then Venezuela, who is already on the committee, which is guilty of significant human rights crimes, including arbitrary killings, forced disappearances, torture, and cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment by security forces, violence or threats of violence against journalists, unjustified arrests or prosecutions of journalists, and censorship. Crimes involving violence or threats of violence targeting indigenous persons and the worst forms of child labor. These countries are laughably appointed to a committee whose main mission is to be responsible for, for listen to this, 
the promotion and protection of all human rights around the globe, unquote. It would be funny if it weren't so awful and so serious and if so many people weren't victims to this perverted and brutal inhumanity by the very people who sit on this ridiculous and horribly cynical committee which normalizes and accepts the worst in human behavior. So as I said, this really bugs me, and I guess I would put myself in the company of others who believe that the UN is not able to fulfill its purpose. And even as it tries to grab more control from the people of the world, including invading our legal systems when it comes to issues like guns in the hands of private citizens, I don't believe that they should have any power at all. So, now we were speaking of some of these countries that have abominable records in human rights, and we were talking about China. Now, I have some thoughts about where China is going that I want to share with you. China has made it very clear, unlike Russia, which only wants to recapture the old Russian empire, China wants to capture and conquer the world. China's leader, Xi Jinping, has made it very clear. His dream of global dominance is an echo of Napoleon Bonaparte's prophecy. When he said this more than 200 years ago, China, he said, is a sleeping giant. Let her sleep, for when she wakes, she will shake the world, unquote. 200 years later, Xi Jinping reminded the world of Napoleon's warning when he said, quote, Napoleon Bonaparte once said that China is a sleeping lion, and when China wakes up, the world will shake. In fact, he said, the lion of China has awoken, unquote. She got the animal wrong, but his message was loud and clear. And China is spreading its influence to cast a long shadow on much of the world. Since taking power in March 2013, President Xi has reorganized China's military, its economy, political influence that it has around the world. Xi has determined to live his dream of China as the leader of the world. China already has investments in more than 100 deepwater ports and airports in 63 countries. China has already made significant advances in many parts of the world on virtually every continent in the South China Sea, the South Pacific, and the Arctic, in Africa, and in South America. Many of these enterprises are connected to the costly and highly controversial Belt and Road Initiative, which China developed to create trade routes from China to other parts of the world through massive infrastructure projects. Multi-million dollar soft loans from China for the construction of roads and bridges and airports and tunnels and deep water ports and other large infrastructure projects have so far resulted in more failures than successes. China's method for gaining control, though, is as dangerous as it is 
creative. What China does is to offer very, very attractive soft loans, which is structured in such a way that they appear to be very beneficial on the surface until the time that the borrowers are no longer able to pay them back. And when they default, then China demands concessions that increase its power in new areas. It's a slick trick. And China has been successful in making this work for years. China's own economy has grown exponentially for years, and often at the expense of the foreign companies who come to benefit from the generous incentives and then lose their proprietary technology and designs, which the Chinese reverse engineer and build into their own products, which they then undersell the real developers in the world markets. China's total GDP in 1980 was under $90 billion in current dollar value. $90 billion. Today, that number is nearly $18 trillion. That kind of growth has never happened to a country in such a short period of time, but they have found the secret sauce. They entice, they steal, they undersell, and all of that enriches them and enslaves the companies that were foolish enough to buy into it. Some years ago, I was invited to present to a conference in China on joint venturing between the United States and China. On day three of the conference, the presenters were all invited to meet with a member of the government for a breakfast and a question and answer session. We were able to ask the questions in English, and our conference leader would translate them into Chinese. The government official would then answer the Chinese, and then our conference leader would translate the answer to us in English. It was a little cumbersome, but it worked. When I had an opportunity to ask a question, this is the one I asked. I recently read an article in the Wall Street Journal about the risk that American companies faced when moving their operations to China. What guarantees can you give our companies that your government will not nationalize them and take their intellectual property away from them once they are here? Well, the truth is that I wasn't able to complete my question because our translator interrupted me and said in a very annoyed voice, I'm not going to translate that. And he quickly moved on to the next innocuous question. Now, if that had happened today, I might have been arrested. But way back then, my question was just swept under the rug, never to be heard or seen for the rest of our visit. It may seem like a lame anecdote now, but it was a dark preview of what would really happen in the not-too-distant future when China blatantly stole valuable, protected intellectual property from American companies who had moved their operations to China. And American companies lost hundreds of billions of dollars every year as China re-engineered the technology, used it in creating competitive products, and then undersold them in the world markets. You see, for Xi, China's future lies in deconstructing the centers of global power and replacing them with a new order, with China at the center, in what China once called the Middle Kingdom sitting in the center of the world.
But China has some very big problems that are not likely to go away anytime soon. Huge problems that could eventually bring down Xi's awoken lion. But you know, it's something that we're not really paying too much attention to. We need to. Because for all his ambition and acquired power, Xi has managed China badly. The country has suffered from severe floods, droughts, famines, disease, and in all of these, in his effort to deal with them, Xi has punished the Chinese people. When the fields were infested with fall armyworms, it was the Chinese people who suffered famine. And when the heavy summer rains flooded many parts of China, thousands died when the government, because China had failed to prepare for the floods, and rivers flooded the dams that gave way from the pressure. In some cases, the government actually blew up the dams in order to release the water. And people downstream drowned because the government did not give them sufficient warning. Last summer, the rains in China were extraordinarily heavy. And in the city of Shenzhou, many residents were trapped in the flooded subway system and tunnels, and many were left stranded in schools, apartments, and offices. Many people died. They were drowned because they could not reach a safe place out of the water. And of course, when the COVID-19 virus was released from the Wuhan Virus Laboratory in Hubei province, it was the Chinese people who suffered the most from the beginning. The virus was first seen in Wuhan and reported by a doctor in the city hospital. He was one of the first ones to die from the virus. But the government kept misreporting the numbers and punished those who reported the spread of the virus and refused to let anyone from WHO or the CDC inspect the lab or track the source. More than that, the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, refused to give accurate numbers of the sick and the dead. They're still doing that. But videos soon emerged of people dying on the street, hospital wards crowded, jammed with people clamoring for help, and the endless beds and hastily built hospitals to handle the number of sick. We now know that the 70-plus crematoria in Wuhan were working 24 hours a day for weeks on end, and the dead soon reached tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands, but these were numbers that the Chinese never released. And later on, when the virus refused to give up and new variants appeared, some say they too were engineered in Wuhan's lab, China became a most dangerous place to live, not only because of the virus and its variants, but because of the CCP's lockdown policies. People, even in cities of many millions of residents, were shut in their homes with no access to food or medicine. In some cases, the homes were actually sealed. In other cases, the residents were forced to leave their homes with only an hour or two notice and had to go find someplace else to live so that their homes could be used to quarantine others. This policy was diabolical and very dangerous. In Shanghai, today, a city of nearly 28 million people, 
The entire population is in lockdown and people are leaning out of their windows, shouting for help, crying, we have no food, we're starving. China is the only country with such a demonic lockdown policy. And even though COVID has reached virtually every country in the world, only one country has imposed this policy and it is China that has the worst infection rate of any country in the world. It's not rocket science. She is now facing a faltering economy, a poorly managed epidemic in which the population of China has been locked down, stalling industry and agriculture, all of which bodes poorly for China's future. This, on the one hand, is a wait-and-see game, but on the other, it's a game that starts off with, you'd better be prepared for what's coming next, because whatever it is, it could happen at any moment, and if you're not ready, you're likely to be hurt by the outcome. We are the world's most powerful country, and it's time that we showed it again and keep the monsters who want to destroy what we have built from succeeding. Xi Jinping isn't the only one who wants to rule the world. In the dark recesses of paneled walls and expensive wine are men and women who think they know better how to run our lives and our country. And I'll tell you all about it right after the break. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best, freedom lies in being bold. Well, for six incredible years, bold is America out loud. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. We are grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other great publications whose directors have attended our meetings and respected their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subjected to the lights of publicity during those years. But the world is more sophisticated and prepared to march towards a world government. The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers is surely preferable to the national auto-determination practiced in past centuries, unquote. David Rockefeller, one of the elite, said that, and it is a thunderous and terrifying statement. The idea that the banks and the so-called intellectual elite would become the government that instructs us how to live is a concept that we should hate on its face. But the fact that there are real people, the uber-wealthy, the elite, 
Those who preach the danger of climate change, who instruct us to decrease our carbon footprint and yet still fly to their private meetings in elegant halls in their private jets. And they're the ones who disparage our system of government, imperfect as it is, because they think they know better than we how we should live and what our priorities should be. George Soros, one of the wealthy elite whose net worth is estimated at some $8.3 billion, once said, quote, American supremacy is the greatest threat to the world today. He also said, the main enemy of the open society, I believe, is no longer the communist, but the capitalist threat. This from a man who has made his billions as a capitalist. And now he is underwriting many of the organizations who are trying to undo our American system of government and push us into a socialist government, even though he must surely know that no socialist government in the history of socialism has ever succeeded. And that's why people like Rockefeller and Soros are advocating that America and the world needs a government which goes beyond national borders, in which the wise, the elite, the rich, tell the rest of us how we should live and how we should be governed. And one more quote from George Soros. The main obstacle to a stable and just world order is the United States. This idea happens to coincide with a prevailing opinion in the world. In politics, manipulating reality can take precedence over finding reality. The cynicism of his remarks are particularly chilling when you think that he is part of a very powerful group of men and women who believe the very same thing that he believes and who feel that they are better positioned to decide how the world should be governed and by whom. And although many of them are Americans, what they are promoting would ultimately lead to everything that America stands for. This is what they call the New World Order. And these are the people who meet every year at Davos and who fly in their private jets to this exclusive meeting. And this is what they believe their goal and their duty is to mankind. They consider themselves philanthropists. They think they're doing good. But what they are really doing is deciding for us what our lives should be and how we should live them and how we should be governed. Notice I say how we should be governed and not how we should govern ourselves because that's not what they have in mind. They call this a new world order and they consider it their duty to carry out this work at the very, very high levels of their existence. What they are working on, they call the Great Reset. 
Maybe one of the first steps in implementing these concepts is the United Nations Small Arms Treaty that many think may lead to an international gun registration plan, including a plan that will involve individual American gun owners. The UN Small Arms Treaty is designed to place the gun rights of individual nations under the oversight of the United Nations. And guess what? Since no other nation enjoys Second Amendment, like Americans do, the goal of this treaty seems to be to disarm Americans. What this treaty says is that all gun owners must be registered. As I said earlier, I think the United Nations has failed in its mission and can't possibly recover from its failure by imposing laws on individual states that override local laws. That was never supposed to be its role, and any thought of doing so now is against everything in which we Americans believe. We who believe in America are going to be up against it when we have to deal with those who believe that the New World Order and the Great Reset are where we have to go. It's wrong for the world, and it's wrong for America. But it's going to be a heavy lift against those who have the money and the power. Although the New World Order has been in the works for decades, it was the COVID crisis of 2020 and 2021 that really gave the momentum to the Great Reset and power to the major corporations who were able to consolidate their grip on the economy from their lofty positions in the rarefied air of the uber-wealthy. At the same time that the uber-wealthy were deciding our future, socialism continued to advance down here for the rest of us. It's not clear where this is going, but what is clear is that we need to take a strong stand against it because if we don't, we will lose what we value most in this country and we can't afford to do that. Our founding fathers set us up so that we could, in fact, fight against the authoritarian rule of others. It's a lot to think about. Now, as I'm recording this today, we are in the middle of Holy Week and approaching the Christian holiday of Easter and the Jewish holiday of Passover. We are already in the middle of Ramadan, and I'll get to that in a minute. These two holidays, Easter and Passover, are related. The Passover holiday, which is a week long, celebrates the liberation of the Jewish people from slavery under the Egyptian pharaoh. That was estimated to be in the year... On the first night, Jewish families gathered together for a retelling of the story that is relayed in the book of Exodus, the freeing of the Jewish slaves, the flight through the Red Sea, which God parted for them, and the 40 years of travel through the desert and the final return of the Jews to the land of Israel. This is a holiday that celebrates freedom, freedom from bondage, freedom from living as slaves in a foreign land, and freedom to worship God as they believed. 
But here's the connection. The Passover Seder, which is the festive meal and the retelling of the story of the Exodus, was also the Last Supper of Jesus before his crucifixion. And maybe that is why the Christian calendar marks this holiday by the lunar calendar rather than the Gregorian calendar, as it does for all the other Christian holidays, such as Christmas, which always falls on December 25th. But Passover, like all the other Jewish holidays, is determined by the Hebrew lunar calendar. And for some reason, uh, Easter also is determined by the lunar calendar, which is why they generally fall close together. The connection between these two holidays should bring us closer, Christians and Jews. It's always a good time for a holiday that celebrates, and for Christians, it's the resurrection. For Jews, it's liberation and freedom. If you've ever traveled to Israel, and if you haven't, you should, if it's possible, you can visit the tomb from which Jesus was resurrected. And you can see the places that existed in Jewish history a few thousand years before that. And these are places that are referred to in many places in the Bible. A visit to Israel can be a life-changing event as it brings all of these places that you've read about all your life to life. But there's something disturbing going on in Israel now, and it's also something I want to talk about. It's Ramadan now. Ramadan is a Muslim holiday, the holiest month in the Islamic calendar. It's a holy month of fasting from sunup to sundown, a religious holiday that marks the period in Muhammad's life when he received the initial revelations that later became the Quran. And it is a time, apparently, when violent attacks against Jews is not only accepted, it is encouraged. This year, just before and during the beginning of Ramadan, there were four separate terrorist attacks against Israeli Jews. On Sunday night, March 27th, two police officers were murdered on the main street in the city of Hadera, and two others were injured by automatic weapons used by the terrorists, who were Israeli Arabs from the city of Umm al-Fakhim. The terrorists were killed by two undercover police officers who were eating at a nearby restaurant when the attack occurred. Four other people were injured in the attack. Then on March 29th, a Palestinian terrorist murdered five people when he shot at passersby in the city of B'nai Brak. That's the home to the, a very large Jewish Orthodox community east of Tel Aviv. And then on April 7th, a restaurant in Tel Aviv was attacked by Palestinian terrorists. And on April 11th, Israeli soldiers opened fire on a man who was throwing firebombs at a passing Israeli car. Last year, the advisor on religious affairs to Palestinian Authority Chairman Mahmoud Abbas made a pronouncement on the first day of Ramadan that in the same way that the Muslim prophet Muhammad engaged in war during Ramadan, so too the Palestinian Arabs should engage in jihad. He explained how Muhammad had conquered Mecca during Ramadan and that Ramadan is not a month of laziness, but rather, as it also was in the life of the prophet, a month of jihad, conquest, and victory. 
This year, the message of Ramadan has extra meaning because although it always comes at various times of the year because of the Muslim lunar calendar, this year it falls at the same time as Easter and Passover, which makes it especially important for believers to follow the way of jihad during the month of Ramadan. So on Friday, April 15th, 158 people were injured on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where hundreds of Palestinian young men demonstrated with flags of the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. The demonstrators threw stones at police and set off fireworks, and they stockpiled rocks and other objects so that they would be ready for further clashes. And so there's a big difference between the way that Christians and Jews celebrate the holidays of Easter and Passover and the way Muslims, not all Muslims, for sure not all Muslims, but Muslims who are wrapped up in their visions of jihad, how they observe Ramadan as a time of jihad and attacks on infidels the people like us that they consider to be infidels. We live in interesting times, my friends, and it's not an easy time for most of us. There is the constant threat of COVID in all its various forms, and the fear, even a small one, that it might come home to our home to roost and infect our family. In fact, just today, I learned that a close relative and his wife were just diagnosed with COVID. And then there are the tensions that come from the rise in crime, the rapid and terrifying rise in crime on our city streets, particularly if we live in a city where the police have been defunded, where the law enforcement manpower has been reduced, and where criminals are freed on the street without bail, where the jails become revolving doors, the criminal goes in and he's immediately released without bail. And then there is the uncertainty that comes as thousands of illegal immigrants are welcomed into our country and bust to unsuspecting cities all over America. How is our country going to absorb so many people, many of whom are carrying diseases or drugs or are trafficking in human lives? Our government is not vetting these illegal immigrants, and we don't know who they are or if they present a danger to us and our communities. Look, President Biden has been in office only 15 months, and in that short time, he has done more damage to this country than could ever have been imagined. But here is where I think there is a little hope. This is the year of midterm elections. This is the time when all people now in office who have been complicit in the destruction to our country that has taken place over the last year. Can it be possibly turned around? I think so. It means that the Democrats who have worked so hard to impose the Green New Deal and other socialist policies on us when inflation has skyrocketed to heights not seen for decades, 
when our Democrat Congress has spent trillions on their favorite pet projects, spent far more than this country can afford on things we don't need, and ignored some of what is most essential to our survival? It means that when we ran out of Afghanistan with our proverbial tail between our legs, leaving thousands of Americans and allies behind to the evil of the Taliban, and now as we slow walk the essential life-saving weapons and ammunition and military equipment to Ukraine, as thousands of people died because we didn't move fast enough, how do we repair this? Well, we can't repair it all. But what we can do is when the time for elections come, the midterm elections that are coming up in November, we have to be ready and we have to be thorough in our readiness so that enough of us go to the polls and vote for the people who believe in America, who believe in the Constitution and the vision of our founding fathers, who believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and believe that it is for all American citizens, for those of us who love our country and who believe in everything it stands for. This November, we have got to change the direction that this country is going in by electing people like us who love this country and who can begin to repair all the damage that has been done this year. There's an old expression that goes, every long journey begins with a small step. And that's what we have in front of us, a long journey to recover and reconstruct the nation that we love. But it begins with a small step on election day this November. Thank you, my friends, for spending this hour with me. And I want to take a moment to wish you all a happy Easter, a happy Passover. This is the most wonderful time of the year. It's the time when Mother Nature begins to show the first signs of spring. And if you live in the northern half of the country, it's the time when the grass begins to appear and the tulips and daffodils raise their flowers to the sun. Let's take a little break and just enjoy the season. It's a sign that there is always room in our hearts and in our lives for hope and optimism that things will get better. Thank you for spending this hour with me. I'm Ilana Friedman, and this has been The Voice of a Nation.